0: Good afternoon. It is I, Chuck Morse, every Thursday at 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time here at WMFO 91.5 a.m. in Medford, Somerville, Boston. Welcome to the program. You're welcome to join me. 855-915-9636 is the number if you'd like to call in. 855-915-9636. What is on your mind this afternoon? Huh? My latest article is up on Newsmax.com. Uh, um, this is a uh, I contribute to Newsmax every week. I should mention that this is not for profit, so you can I can mention it <laughs> on on this station. And, uh, I think I'll go right to it because it has a lot to do with this, um, this whole issue of, um, of the, um, the so-called Russia collusion and, uh, and, uh, President Donald Trump and how they continue to promote this narrative, uh, you know, day after day, week after week. And, um. You know, quite falsely, in my opinion, nothing has come out. We're talking about um, investigations that go back really almost a year now. I think they started in August of last year by three different congressional committees, including the FBI and the FBI. Not to mention the mainstream media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, all of the Trump haters, all of the enemies of President Trump. The CIA, headed up by Bill Clinton's former CIA director, Brennan has weighed in. Uh, James Comey from the FBI has weighed in. Uh, Democratic senators like Dianne Feinstein, Democratic representatives like Maxine Waters. Um, You have people who are the most powerful and the most influential people in the United States and even in the world weighing in on this, to use a Yiddish term, this fakakhta conspiracy theory that President Trump somehow is colluding with the Russians. So, nothing has been found. Dianne Feinstein has admitted as much on the floor of the U.S. Senate when asked. She responded by saying, when asked, do you have evidence that there was collusion between the the Trump campaign and Russia? She said, admitted that she does not, but that they have rumors. Now... I think Diane Feinstein's a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer, but I think I'm on fairly solid ground when I point out that rumors have no legal standing. Rumors don't hold up in court. In fact, our entire system of jurisprudence is one that is supposed to ferret out rumors so that people are not falsely accused and get to truths. So, if all they have is rumors and they have spent untold millions of dollars and, and air time and print time and you know huge effort to try to prove rumors then that itself is a national scandal I would contend and why are they doing it because they want to just dis- they want to throw President Trump off balance they want to you know create kind of like a you know in a boxing term it's kind of rope a dope you know, they want to get him off his game so that he's out there shadow boxing and not fulfilling the agenda that he ran on and that he won on, which, of course, they despise and they fear. Nevertheless, President Trump continues onward, forging forward In what I would describe as a revolutionary movement, possibly the most significant revolutionary movement since the founding of the republic. He is bringing back basic common sense to our politics. He is, in a sense, sense, representing, if not enacting, principles that not only make sense and that are natural to any sovereign nation but reflect the American people. Those principles are ones that are deeply shocking to the sort of fuzzy, intellectual, um, left-leaning elite that has held the high ground in this country's culture and politics and, frankly, economy. For a long time, certainly going back to the 60s, if not earlier. And that is that Donald Trump has articulated in very clear terms the importance of asserting national sovereignty. That he is putting his nation, the United States, the nation that he was elected to represent, before all other nations. And thus he is putting the interest of the American citizen first before all other citizens. This may seem like a simple concept. This might even be the kind of thing that might have been weakly mauled by other politicians in a very sophistic terms. You know, terms that um, French scholar Elaine Benescon called totalitarian language, indirect language. But in the case of Donald Trump, not only is he articulating these ideas with direct language, but he means it. He's sincere. I believe, even if he's not sincere, the point is he's done it and the American people have responded in a way that is shocking to this elite establishment. He threatens to wake up the beast of common sense. Of course we put America first. Why would we put someone else first? I mean, in your own life, you put yourself first. Why would you put someone else first? What kind of a virtue would that be? If you don't put yourself first, then you can't do anything for anyone else. You know, the, uh, the, the sophistic, uh, you know, wiggling, you know, waffling left will say, well, you don't care about other people. Well, you, you can't care about other people unless you put yourself first. You have to take care of your home front before you can then reach a helping hand to others. It's just that simple. It's observable in nature. It's obvious to anyone who has a shred of honesty floating around. So you put yourself first. You put your family second. Your community third. Your nation fourth. In that order. That's a natural order of things. That's understood as I've pointed out in the animal kingdom you know it's it's understood by the plant kingdom every living being puts themselves first and their own you know future their own ability to thrive their own destiny first and then they're able to affect and be in a better position to affect the welfare of others and so president trump articulates these simple ideas i'm going to put america first i'm going to make america great again because we're going to go back to our ideals or, not, or at least advance our ideals. And those ideals are progressive ideals. And that's why I would contend the, the left establishment despises and fears Trump. So they're getting him off center with all these cockamamie you know, conspiracies about colluding with Russia and all of that stuff. And they're not letting go of it. I mean, it's getting so ridiculous that to, when, as they manufacture fake news And President Trump is absolutely right about that. That they spend a a day or two focusing on the fact that, oh, he was seen speaking with Vladimir Putin, you know, at this G8 conference or G19 conference, whatever it is. You know, as if this is some conspiracy, some, some shock. First of all, putting aside the fact that these kinds of conspiracy theories are damaging to American foreign policy. Because we probably should be uh, forging a friendly relationship with Russia. Why not? Certainly President Obama tried to. Remember the reset? President Bush tried to. President Clinton tried to. And actually did, in a sense, with uh, Boris Yeltsin. And certainly Cold War presidents tried to. And they were applauded by the left. You know, when, uh, when Nixon uh, you know went to Russia. You know, oh, suddenly he's, he's like... Even though he's evil, he's going to Russia. Wonderful. Back then, of course, Russia was even further to the left than it is now under Putin. It was, you know, those were the old hardcore Soviet times. But now, in this day and age, we should be forging a good relations with Russia. Um, you know, Obama and Bush both, both sort of failed in that regard. Trump is actually succeeding we should be working with Russia to defeat and destroy ISIS and rebuild Syria. We have common interests in the war against radical Islamic terrorism around the world. You know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, Russia has a lot of experience with that. Going way back, I mean, really to the days of the czars, you know, Russia knows the problem around that. They've dealt with it. They have their own domestic problem. We ought to be working with them on, you know, security. And on, you know, Russia has moved away from communism. We should encourage that. Yes, they are corrupt. No, they are not yet, quote, democratic. They don't have a tradition of it, unlike this country. You know, before the communist times, they had the czars. They've never had a genuinely democratic movement. So, you know, that's just the way it is. I mean, we have to work with them as a sovereign nation and nudge them in the direction of, of a freer system, of a free market. But at the same time, we have strategic interests with Russia, really going way back. Russia has traditionally been a, a, an ally of the United States. I mean, our first ambassador to Russia was John Quincy Adams. Abraham Lincoln reached out to Tsar Alexander II during the Civil War, and the Tsar sent a flotilla to San Francisco Bay and New York Harbor to help Lincoln fend off possible aid by the British, who were our enemies during that war, and the French, um, any effort they may have decided to engage in to help the Confederacy. You know, it, it let them know that they were not to take advantage of America's time of weakness when we had a civil war. So... Russia's been a natural ally of the United States and now with the fall of the Soviet Union we ought to be trying to um, develop a relationship with them And, and this idea that the left is now crowing about this it has a lot of irony to it for sure because they weren't crowing about it back when Russia really was an enemy under the leftist regime of Stalin and that's the topic of my article in Newsmax and you can read this for yourself I'll read a little of it and I'll comment. Progressives have a long history of foreign collusion. Progressive commentators such as Rachel Maddow, Chris Matthews, Stephanie Miller, and their cacophonous coterie of smart sounding experts and political hacks toss around words like collusion, treason, un American to describe a meeting that Donald Trump Jr. held with, quote, the Russians to gather opposition research. A minor scandal for sure, but they forget history. They claim the moral high ground and they are in full Dutch with their leftist memes on display, the cackles and the smirks, the overdose of smug. They want us to forget that their decades of syncopatic support for the contact for the corrupt antics of Bill and Hillary Clinton, and their greed, their suppression of investigations, their dubious interaction with foreign powers, their grasping for power. They want us to forget that American officials, so-called progressives, their ideological predecessors, really did collude with, quote, "the Russians" in generations past." that those officials really were un-American traitors. The same type of progressives who now incessantly and mercilessly attack President Trump, attacked and vilified those who sought to expose what was real collusion and treason back then. I refer to the many prominent American officials holding high office in the Franklin D. Roosevelt administration who were secretly colluding with Stalin. Indeed, most of those same officials were, in the de facto sense, colluding with Adolf Hitler during the first two years of World War II, the 1939-1941 Hitler-Stalin Pact. That would include such prominent progressives as FDR's Undersecretary of State Alger Hiss, Undersecretary of the Treasury Harry Dexter White, Economic Advisor Laughlin Curry chief aide and diplomat Harry Hopkins, and a lengthy list of agents and abettors of Stalin who had wormed their way into the government. Back then, the progressives were not gloating about the congressional committees that were investigating and hearing testimony about real collusion, such as the House on American Activities Committee. They weren't singing the praises of FBI Director uh, J. Edgar Hoover like they now crow about James Comey. Hoover investigated real collusion back then, and unlike Comey, he didn't have an axe to grind. There are profound differences between those progressives back then who put the interests of communist Russia, and for a time Nazi Germany, over that of their own country, and the Russian hacking of the election today. Back then, the progressives embraced... The ideology of the enemy over the American way of life. They engaged in actions that benefited the Soviets and hurt America during World War II. Actions that cost American lives. Stalin, and for that matter Hitler, were obviously much further to the left than is Vladimir Putin today. Of course, this real conspiracy is explained away by progressive historians who give these traitors a pass by labeling them as, quote, idealistic. Back then, we had brave leaders, such as Senator John F. Kennedy, Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, Senator Hubert H. Humphrey, and Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, who called out the colluders and who supported full investigations. They found themselves under attack by the same clique that is now suddenly wrapping themselves in the American flag as they try to cook up conspiracy theories against President Trump and his family. Back then they engaged in a massive campaign of deception and cover-up. Now they have pulled out the microscope so they can look at every cell that might show the administration to be pro-Russian. It's as if there was a Russian under every bed so there it is that's my article and I'm very proud of this article I think it's one of the better ones I've written and this is on, on Newsmax you can check it out so what am I saying here I'm saying that look I'm listening because I'm doing a bit of driving lately at night for my job for my work requires that I've had the opportunity to listen to MSNBC and, and Rachel Maddow. Who, by the way, sounded a little tired last night. It sounded like she's slowing down a bit. But over this past week, when the scandal broke about Don Jr.'s meeting with uh, Russians who, who claimed to want to give him um, you know, um, opposition research. Which is, of course, there's nothing illegal about that. Alan Dershowitz has weighed in on that pointing out that there's nothing illegal about it. He can meet with anyone he wants. He can take any opposition research he wants to take. That's just what campaigns do. Uh, To not do that, actually, is not doing a good job because you're supposed to do research on your opponent and get information. To use it if it's not real, or if it's not verified, or if it's not true, that's a problem. But if someone calls you up and says... I have opposition research on your opponent. I've got some things going on. What the heck? I mean, I, I did it. When I ran for Congress against Barney Frank back in 2004, I was contacted by someone who said, I have a dossier on Congressman Frank, and I'd like to give it to you, and I want you to use it. And uh, this person, I'm not going to mention who it was, but it's you know somewhat of a, frankly, a bit of a shadowy... Um, political operative. Of course, I took the meeting privately, and I took the dossier and I looked it over. And it this I did nothing illegal. That's that's opposition research. And it was filled with information that was very carefully documented and cited, but it was so. It was some of it was so vile and so awful and so corrupt and just. You know, it was really disgusting stuff that, you know, in an ordinary campaign, it would have derailed the opponent if I had gone out with even a half of it or a third of it. But in the case of Barney Frank, I felt that it wouldn't have mattered because I really did at that point conclude that he was going to win re-election no matter what what I did or what he did. And so I felt that by going out with this stuff it would damage me. It would, it would boomerang back on me and I would be, I would, I, would, I would reap the consequences even more than I already reaped for that campaign and I don't want to go into that. But it, it took a major toll on, on me personally and, and on my professional life afterwards. I mean, and I'm, again, I don't want to go there but, you know, it would have been much worse if, for me personally if I had done it and, and I felt there was nothing really to be gained by it you know, it was very ugly, personal stuff. It wasn't like something that had political or social import. You know, I was interested in running a campaign against Frank because I thought that my ideology, my beliefs, were a very good, stark contrast to his. And as such, it would give the voters a chance to have a referendum on what they, where they were at that point politically, what they, how they saw the country, how they saw the district. And um, I didn't want to go into personal stuff. You know, I just I just didn't like it. So I never released any of that information. Never used it. Um, I think I destroyed it. I mean, I, either that or I have it salted away somewhere. I've got all these boxes of stuff in my... <laughs> I need to get a handle on that. I think that probably will be doing so in this coming year. But I, I'm pretty sure I destroyed it. But I, I, it's nothing I'd ever use. The point I'm making is that it's perfectly appropriate for any campaign to do opposition research. They did nothing wrong. It doesn't matter who they were meeting. In fact, of course, there are people who are unsavory out there who are going to give you this research. You know, that's how reporters work. That's how the New York Times works. Do you think all these unnamed sources that they have, people who know stuff about Trump, who are those people, right? Are they like dark operatives? Who knows who they are? That's part of the business of, of intelligence gathering. You know, you're not always going to get a Boy Scout delivering you this kind of information. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's it's the underbelly of politics. And, you know, quite frankly, it's, it's ultimately necessary because we do need to get all the... get to truths, and sometimes truths are ugly. So, I don't think that... Trump needs to apologize for this, I certainly don't think that Trump Jr. needs to apologize for it, and yet, Rachel Maddow is on like a, it's like she's like there with a machine gun, blasting away, I've never seen anything like it, I mean it's brilliant, it's a great talk show host and and the thing that bothers me most is she's like, we want to pull the security clearance for Jared Kushner and for Ivanka Trump, Really? I mean, is that uh, you, you, because you think that they're a security threat to the United States because they attended some stupid meeting Well, they they spy are they like Laughlin Curry or Alger hiss, you know, or Harry Dexter White or these other communists who really were security threats and who were threaded throughout the FDR administration at all levels and who were working for the Russians and who were engaging in sabotage and espionage for the, for the Russians passing secrets or who were passing policies that helped the Russians like for example Harry Dexter White as Under Secretary of the Treasury at the end of the war he shipped over to Russia um, monetary plates and monetary ink so that Russia could print money uh, backed by the American system I mean or, or, or he basically he promised Chiang Kai-shek our ally in China That he would be delivering gold so that Chiang Kai-shek could create a currency that might help him win the war against the Japanese. And then at the end of the war stiffing him and saying, sorry, we're not sending it. The result was a huge inflation that undermined Chiang Kai-shek and helped, guess who? The communists, Mao Zedong. Is it that kind of person? Is this what we should look to Jared Kushner like he's doing things that would undermine our national security? I mean, talk about hell, the you know, collusion with Russia. The New York Times, in one of its few moments of honesty, frankly, and candor, in March of, of uh, 2015, ran a front-page article basically ex- exposing the fact that Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, had made a deal with Putin through a subsidiary company Operating out of Canada to sell 20% of American uranium assets to this company. This is a Russian front group, according to the New York Times. You don't have to believe me on this. Talk about, you know, collusion, frankly, treason, maybe not the legal definition, but certainly in spirit. Shortly after this wonderful deal by which this country gave up. of our uranium supplies to Russia. Russia invites Bill Clinton to come to Moscow to deliver a speech for half a million dollars and they contribute untold millions, who knows how much, to the corrupt, rotten Clinton Foundation. And talk about suppressing investigations. That wasn't investigated and there was a lot more of those sort of investigations that were stopped during the Clinton administration with regard to funny dealings with Chinese operatives and the possible sale of American military know-how and materiel to China in exchange for money to go into the, uh, the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign. Those investigations, which were being done by the FBI, they were mysteriously stopped. So you want to you know make an accusation that Trump tried to stop this cockamamie Russia conspiracy theory by firing Comey? Take a look at history. Putting aside the fact that he actually didn't. And Comey admitted as much on the stand during senatorial hearings. And did so through gritted teeth. Since obviously Comey, I think it's pretty clear, despises Trump and wants to take him down. And admitted that as well. When he was at, when he said that, the, a day or two after his being fired, and having a sleepless night as he described it, he suddenly decided to drop a dossier on Trump to the New York Times through a through a surrogate, this this new this professor who dropped it, and, and with the hope, and he admitted this, that this would lead to the appointment of a special prosecutor, and it did. Now it's now come out that there was information in that dossier and this has been confirmed by um, Assistant Assistant, um, Attorney General uh, Ron Rosenstein that some of the information that Comey used in that dossier was classified which of course is illegal Comey could be prosecuted for that he did it to embarrass Trump he did it to try to Create an atmosphere by which a special prosecutor was, would be appointed. Rosenstein did appoint a special prosecutor under that condition. And that special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, is a lifelong friend and mentor to James Comey. And he has stacked his staff with Democratic operatives and Democratic donors. Now they're going to go after Trump. And it's ugly because mainly it's not so much the Russia thing, which if they just stuck to that, that would be okay because they're not going to find anything. Instead, now they're letting out leaks. Not necessarily Mueller. I don't think he's doing this, but someone has done it. Indicating that they're going to go after the Donald J. Trump business, which I would argue, and Trump has said to the New York Times in his interview yesterday, should be off limits. do so they really want to dig into someone's personal business? You know he says he, he did business with Russia, so what? Did business with them with the Miss America pageant. That's his business. That's private business. And now they're going to they want to investigate his his children. they want to call in Ron uh, you know, Don Jr. and and Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump to testify. You know, this is like, this is what what banana republics do. This is just downright ugly. You know, they know that Trump's weakness is his children. And so they're going to try to get him with that. They're going to try to harass him by charging these people with false uh, crimes. They've done nothing illegal. This is ridiculous. This is harassment, the kind of thing that should not go on In this country, we should not be using our government agencies, our elected government agencies like the Congress or, you know, our appointed government agencies like the FBI to go on political vendettas to uh, to basically investigate people just to embarrass them under very, very faulty pretenses. Why don't they look into some real corruption? Why don't they take a look at the Clinton Foundation? for one thing, but they won't. Anyway, you're certainly welcome to join the program here at WMFO. Chuck Morse Live every Thursday, 10 to 11 a.m., where I hold the fort, right here at Tufts University. 855-915-9636. What is on your mind this afternoon, huh? 855-915-9636 Let's see if I can read a couple of public service announcements. Why not? This is a good one. I like this. Walking is good exercise. Hooray! Although other physical activities can provide a more vigorous workout, walking is easy. Requires no special equipment and is good exercise for most adults. In urban areas, walking can be an excellent alternative to driving or even taking public transportation. For example, it's just a little over 2.5 miles from the Tufts campus in Medford to Harvard Square in Cambridge, a distance that can be walked in about 45 minutes by a healthy adult. Walking can get you fresh air, exercise, burn calories, save you money, and with all the inattentive and otherwise impaired drivers on the road, it's safer than riding a bike. This is a public service message from WMFO in Medford, Tufts Community Radio. And just to throw in a uh, a little personal PSA here, and I, I've, I've said this before. Um, please be careful with when you're out at night going to clubs going to bars going to rock concerts uh, going out with to do whatever you're doing with friends to stick together to not go off on your own especially if you're drinking quite frankly and I'm not suggesting you do drink I don't but if you have an adult beverage as Rush Limbaugh calls it and as a young person as someone who's under 21 Please, you know, or someone who is under in his 20s, I should say. Please uh, re- recognize the fact that, um, you know, your, your body is not fully developed yet. You don't really know how to handle the effects of alcohol yet. You know, I mean, it's one thing for me as a as an adult to go out and have a drink or two. But when I was that age and when you are that age... It's different. You're not yet developed. You don't really have a way of gauging how much you can have. And you can become disabled from it pretty quickly. Um, So please be moderate in your drinking. Please don't feel pressured to drink. There's no virtue in it. You're going to feel sick the next day. You know, I've heard young people brag about how much they drink. That's nothing to brag about. Don't, don't, don't get sucked into that that kind of mentality you're only going to hurt yourself it's not cool and I would add that however if you do take in a drink or two or if you do become intoxicated because I recognize that this might happen with some people please make sure you stick with your friends don't get separated from them you're in a very vulnerable place. Quite frankly, especially if you're a woman or a girl, but for guys too. I mean, I, I should point out it hasn't happened lately, but there has been a series of murders of young men in Boston and area coming out of clubs alone. Uh, there was the the last case I seem to recall was this young guy came out of the Bell in Hand over at the Blackstone Block near Faneuil Hall. And this wasn't even that late. It was about maybe 12 o'clock, maybe 1 o'clock. I guess it was late. I think he went out. He might have been a little intoxicated. Maybe he was going out to have a smoke or something. He just stepped outside the door, and then he disappeared. Um, There was a video of something happening. You couldn't see what happened. But the point is that his body was found several days later floating in the Charles River now this wasn't just this one incident there's been several of these there are rumors and again rumors are not law but there's been a pattern of these sorts of instances happening in Boston over the past maybe year and a half several of them so even if you're a young man be careful to stick with your friends don't wander off alone at night at that point, you know, after midnight or even after 11. And, you know, keep your wits about you. You know, I mean, I, I, the thing is, and by the way, there was nothing, these bodies were not in any way sexually molested. They weren't robbed either, they just were killed. So there's something strange going on out there. Be careful. And obviously, for women and for girls, you know, let's face it. I mean, the reality is that you're vulnerable to attacks. It's just the way it goes. Do I like that? Of course not. No one does. Am I endorsing it? Of course not. I'm simply recognizing that it exists, it always will exist. It's just the way it is in the world. So if you're a young woman, please don't go out walking around alone. Don't go home with someone, frankly, that you don't know. I'm sorry to put it this way. But you're engaging in extremely risky behavior. That could result in, at best, you know, you're you're being raped, frankly. Or at worst, you're being killed. You don't know the other person. You know, you may think they seem like a nice guy. You don't know them, okay? Don't go home with them. Just don't do it. Now... I understand what passion's all about. I understand what lust is all about. I understand what social pressure is all about. I get that. Everyone does. But use some self-respect. Use some control. And what you should do, frankly, and I'm I, look, I'm lecturing. Here I am. I'm, my, my parental side of me is taking over. Get their name. Get their phone number. Get their email address. Get their text number. Enjoy their company in the place with other people there. Wish them a good night and let them go and make sure they do go. And then the next day, if you want to, you can contact them. They can contact you. And then you can get together in a public place, preferably. Meet at your favorite coffee bar, you know, meet at Starbucks. And, you know, have some conversations. Get to know them. Get to know them as people. Don't sell yourself short. Don't give anything away. Have self-respect. I'm sorry if I sound parental here, but I am parental because I'm a parent. Have some self-respect and get to know the person before you go any further. Okay? I mean, it's that simple. Use, use Use some wisdom. Plus, you know, relationships ought to mean something. Quite frankly, sex ought to mean something. It should be connected to a more spiritual side. I mean, I, in an ideal world, I would hope that people don't engage in, in premarital sex at all. You know, that you save sex for your wedding night. But, I recognize that that's, you know, that's not, <laughs> not always the way things go, so fine. Still, show some discretion, show some wisdom, show some self-respect, and get to know people before you Go further with them, anyway. So that's my public service announcement. All right. So is um, is America's record on slavery slammed by Spider-Man? The new Spider-Man movie has a line in it that uh, brings up slavery in American history when it attacks the Washington Monument. It says here this is WorldNet Daily popular movie takes on aim at Washington Monument and the founding fathers. Even Spider-Man isn't immune to endless push for political correctness. Another attempted reboot for the superhero franchise Spider-Man Homecoming, a new movie coming out, is receiving attention for its deliberate attempt to incorporate diversity into its casting, which is great. And while it isn't so unusual, an incongruous critique of the Washington Monument as the product of slave labor is raising eyebrows among some theatergoers. In a the scene, the character Michelle Jones, played by biracial actress Zania Manet Stromer, Coleman, refuses to enter the Washington Monument with the rest of her De- her decathlon team because it was supposedly built by slaves the team's coach who was white protests it was not built by slaves but a nearby security guard makes a gesture suggesting it probably was Joseph Curl writing at the Daily Wire observes the sequence is really weird protesting how it adds nothing to the story Curl says it serves no purpose whatsoever except to denigrate one of the world's great engineering feats America's, uh, that honors America's first president. David Barton, the New York Times bestselling author of The Jefferson Lies, is a well known critic of how leftists abuse history to achieve their political ends. He says it's not even clear the Washington Monument was built by slaves. The claim that the Washington Monument was built by slaves is part of an intensely negative misrepresentation that has come to characterize the progressive presentation of history related to anything from the founding era. And then he goes on to explain that most of the Washington Monument was actually built after the Civil War, so there couldn't have been slaves. That just the base was built before the Civil War. It was not finished. And even that was rebuilt to, to support the rest of the monument afterwards. So, and, and that there was not likely slave labor even in the original when slavery was legal in Washington, D.C. because it was done by very trained um, artisans and that and most slaves were not trained in that way. So the possibility that there might have been slave labor was there, but it was, it was, it was minimal. If, if, it, if it happened and that this is really just an attempt to denigrate uh, George Washington, our founding father, because he was a slave owner um, and I think that that's, that's basically true um, this is a case of um, you know, political correctness as, as um, David Barton says, I mean this is um a reexamination examination of history you know sure America had slavery and that's a stain on, on our history we ought to take a look at at that in the context of the times which is that quite frankly slavery was an institution that existed in much of the world that many people, white people came to this country in a sort of a state of semi-slavery in the form of indentured servitude where they, they basically were in, in exchange for passage to the United States they had to work for a particular uh, organization for I think it was um, seven years, ten years, whatever that such servitude was part occasionally of uh, conditions for release from, from uh, debtors' prisons and that um, there was a certain amount of involuntary work in the United States, or in the or in the British colonies, and in the early Republic, that transcended racial lines. Um, it also is true that the founding fathers, including slave owners like Washington and even Thomas Jefferson, that they were anti-slavery, that they wanted to see slavery abolished, um, but that they didn't have enough, I don't know, I guess personal fortitude or strength to do it because they needed their slaves in order to run their plantations. Um, and that's a shame, you know that that that's not a good image of American history. But we shouldn't forget the fact that they did call for ultimate abolition. They wanted to move the country in that direction. Most people in this country, including most people in the South, did not like slavery. They did not want to see it perpetrated. I mean, there, there, was, an amend- there was actually a part of the Constitution that ended the slave trade by the year 1808. There would be no more importation of slaves. And that there was a major move toward the phasing out of slavery. Um, I think that it was true that in the in the um, early part of the of the 18th century, with the invention, the 19th century, with the invention of the cotton gin, slavery expanded. But if you take a look at the slave-owning population of the South, it was very few people, very elite people wealthy people and that those people controlled their states they were very socialistic in a way they kind of tended to control their states through intimidation and force both subtle and overt, that most people in those states did not support slavery were not slave owners that there were cases frankly of Native Americans who owned slaves and black freed blacks who owned slaves And that it was one of these institutions that, frankly, became more hardened as in the decades before the Civil War because of agitation, political agitation on both sides that were pushing the country toward disunion for reasons that um, I don't totally understand. I don't know, none of us do, but reasons that are pretty well documented Historically. So, you know, it's a complicated question. But, you know, by today's left, it's used as a way to starkly divide people into the oppressed and the oppressor. It's very much Karl Marx's formula, economic formula. And Marx looked at this strictly as an economic issue, divorced from culture divorced from society, where you had people who had more money and property and people who had less. And the people who had more were exploiting the people who had less. You know, the theory of exploitation. And the people who had more were capitalists, and they were Jews, and they were industrialists, and they were corporate interests. And that these people were conspiring deliberately to exploit working people... and that they didn't deserve their wealth. They were earning their wealth as grifters... taking advantage of working people... who were the actual creators of wealth. It's the Marxist dialectic. The division of society into two camps. And then the pitting of those two camps against each other. And it's false. You know, I mean, people own wealth for a lot of reasons. Some of them might very well exploit other people. There's certainly dishonesty. That's just part of human nature. But the system is such that it encourages growth. It's certainly the American system, which is why the left hates America as much as they do. It encourages growth. It encourages mobility both up and down. And it uh, it permits, uh, you know, people to achieve material success. And I think that most working people want to have more success. They're not interested in taking something from someone else just because they have it. They want to achieve it on their own. That's what the American system, that's what our free market system allows. It. That's the atmosphere that is, it creates so that you can achieve regardless of who you are. I'm not suggesting there isn't prejudice I'm not suggesting all that, but nevertheless, if you are good at something and you want to bring that something to the market and you can prove that you can do something that is needed by the market, you have a very good chance of getting into that field and making something out of it. And if you have a free market system that's not heavily regulated by the government, not heavily taxed, then you have a dollar that is reflecting the actual value of the economy. I don't want to get into this, but frankly one that's issued by the by the government as an instrument of, uh, of abstract value. Then you have a chance to accumulate wealth to the degree that you can. I mean, nothing is perfect. Yeah, I know that we have people who inherit wealth. You've got people like, I don't know, former Secretary of State John Kerry. He marries wealth, right? His, his second wife's first husband's trust fund made him one of the richest men in the history of Congress. But that's, that's the way it goes. I mean, that's, that's life. In a free market, you have to just accept the fact that people are going to have different levels of, of wealth and that it's not necessarily fair. There's no such thing as absolute fairness, you have a system of laws that protect the individual so that they can create their own life to the best of their ability and they have to compete and they don't always win we can't all be winners but we can do the best we can in this short lifetime and we can achieve if we let the government step aside and let us achieve I'm not an anarchist we need government, we need regulation especially in areas of complex banking because people can be deceived easily and they have to that has to be exposed but we don't need to have government running things we don't need to have the government as a nanny state taking care of us we can take care of ourselves and for people who are the truly needy who can't take care of themselves for whatever reason we ought, to have a social, we ought to have a safety net. There's no question. But the safety net is not a way of life. It is hopefully a temporary solution to a temporary problem or maybe a permanent problem. But those are very few people. Anyway, we're reaching toward the end of the program so I want to talk briefly about the, uh, the healthcare debate because that's the big story right now. As I sit in the studio... The Congress is saying that they're going to vote next week on whether to um, repeal Obamacare. God willing, they do it. If they do, it is going to be one of the most significant events in world history. It'll be one of the first times a nation voluntarily got rid of a bureaucracy, of a power. It would be an incredible act of, of bravery on the part of our Congress. We will no longer be saddled with this horrible system that is killing people. You know, most Americans can't afford the, the premiums that have gone up because of this system to upwards of $5,000. Nobody has $5,000 lying around to pay for insurance. And by the time you get that paid for, then you have another five, up to $5,000 deductible. That means it's going to cost you up to $10,000 before you can get a flu shot. That's not affordable. We know that Obama lied when he put it in a place. You know, Donald Trump has been accused of lying, but his kinds of lies are harmless lies. They show a bad character for sure. You know, he'll lie about having caught a bigger fish. You know. I had bigger crowds. I had the most this That's it's it's gross, it's inappropriate. inappropriate, but it's harmless. It doesn't hurt people. Obama's lies hurt people. You can have your you could keep your doctor if you want your doctor. You could keep your health care plan if you want like your health care plan. You know, insurance premiums will drop twenty five hundred an average of twenty five hundred dollars a year. Um you'll have more affordable insurance. Those are all lies. And he said them over and over again, I think almost 50 times in different speeches and settings, as he was trying to sell Obamacare to the American public. We now know that insurance costs have almost doubled, and that insurance companies have left entire areas of this country. We know that these lies coming out of the government that... 30,000 people will lose their insurance. Those are highly inflated figures that the insurance they actually have is not real. It's not real when you have a $5,000 deductible. You don't get to it. It's, it's, a, it's phony. It's, it's on paper. Nobody's really covered. And that the real agenda with this insurance is to move to a single-payer system, which means the government is going to run everything. And the government is going to decide what you get and what you don't get. In other words, the government will decide whether you live or die. Now, if you take a look at socialized medicine in countries like Canada and Great Britain, they might look good on paper, but they don't show you the whole truth. They don't show you the statistics of how many people died because they were not, because of the rationing, because of the long lines. Because of the lack of creativity with regard to medical advancements. Because of the Cori scores, which is that people, every person is assigned a Cori score. That's what they call it in Obamacare. I don't know what they call it in England. But that score is basically based upon your health and your age and other factors. So that if you don't have a high Cori score, you don't get covered. In other words, your life isn't worth living. So if you're too old or you're too... You know, you have pre-existing conditions. Yeah, they'll give you something. But you're not going to get the same coverage as someone who has a lower Corey score. Because the government decides what they want, what they think is a good investment. Not you. The government decides whether your life is worth enough. That system runs against American values. It runs against human values, certainly. But America generally has always valued... Every single life. And I'm telling you right now, if you have to go to the hospital, God forbid, and you need emergency surgery or you need something immediately, as bad as insurance, private insurance is, you are better off with a private insurance company than with the government. Ask veterans what it's like with a veterans association. Check out what Medicare is. It's very limited coverage and it costs a lot of money over your lifetime. By the time you get to Medicare, you find out that you've got waiting periods, you've got cutoff dates, you've got you know, it's not so great. And Medicaid is something that, you know, Obama says, Well, we're gonna be putting you know, if we cut Medicaid, we're gonna we're gonna throw millions of people off the rolls. First of all, Obamacare expanded Medicaid to include people who are worth millions of dollars. Did you know that? Somebody who's worth a million dollars in assets but earns not that much money, they can, get a, they can get Medicaid. In other words, they get your tax money when, in fact, they can sell one of their assets if they have a medical emergency. But now they don't have to. Medicaid expansion has resulted in Medicaid moving beyond its original mission which is to actually help the truly needy. And it is costing states a fortune. In Massachusetts, the Medicaid budget is now up to, I think, 40%. That means that other things are being cut in order to pay for this. We should have Medicaid... Medicaid should be cut. It should go back to its original mission, which is to help people who actually are truly needy, who are poor. Not everyone else not as a step toward socialized medicine which is what Obamacare saw it as anyways I've reached the end of the hour I shall return God willing next Thursday live here at 10 to 11 a.m. you can listen to the podcast at Chuck Morse Speaks available at iTunes, Stitcher uh, Google a lot of other places it's now available at Spotify by the way my latest affiliate. Check out my columns at Newsmax. I want to thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, see if I could even put up a little, a little music here, and have a have a wonderful afternoon. Imagine me, a dog, moving in with a human.